Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 243. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, at the time of this recording, we have just finished going through the festival Hanukkah. It's not a biblically mandated feast, but given the uh, reason why Hanukkah became a festival among the Jewish people, we can certainly agree that its purposes and plans and uh, central themes are certainly um, in line with biblical truths, and we would have to agree that the events surrounding the uh, it, the creation of Hanukkah at the time in, in the Jewish people in, in history are certainly miraculous indeed. We, even though we can't always understand how and why certain things come to pass, particularly with bad things that happen to the Jewish people, we nevertheless know, Lord, with, with, this, with assurance that you are using these events, <coughs> excuse me, you're using these events to help Israel to understand the importance of their relationship to you as their one and true and only god and so lord to that extent we continue to yield our lives to you as your people as your covenant people do with us as you will get our attention if it takes persecution then lord do so if it causes us to realize that we are absolutely in need of you as us as our savior then lord do so and we know from reading prophecy that there's going to be more persecution in the future and we don't look forward to that but what we do look forward to is the promises that you've given to us in your word that you will not abandon us you will not leave us and yet you will draw us unto yourself you will bring us to our knees so that we can cry out in repentance and accept you as lord so thank you lord for these times we thank you for the promises and the fact that you are covenantally faithful to us as a people despite the fact that over and over again we have walked away we have been unfaithful we have been disinterested in you as our god forgive us lord where we fall short help us to continue as a people to uh study your word and to press in and to know what it means to have a relationship with our holy god of course in the era of the apostolic scriptures we realize now that this is only possible through a genuine relationship with yeshua your son so help us to find him help us to continue to look for him as a people you've not given up on us so we ask that you will give us a heart to not give up on you a heart to search for you thank you for the study thank you for the people who are joining me tonight wherever they're at continue to bless us and raise us up continue to strengthen us as believers in messiah fill us with your precious holy spirit for it is only through his power that we are going to be able to understand and apply the words that we're going to be studying tonight and so give us a heart to know you help us to look for opportunities to share our witness with others indeed we're not put here just by accident we're not studying these words so that we can just have a warm and fuzzy bible study we have a mandate we've been commanded to take this message around the world and to share it with other people and so give us holy boldness to do so and we'll be careful lord to give you the praise and glory but shame yeshua amen 
Thank you everyone for joining me for these live studies. My name is Aryoban Lyman Hanavi, and the study is two parts. There's two segments. There's an hour-long study given over to a topic known as eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. That's what eschatology stands for, the study of end times. It's a study where we are working our way towards, as you can see on your screen right now, we're working our way towards the book of Revelation. But in order to get there and to properly appreciate the what we would call the uh, um, all of the types and shadows and language that's used in the book of Revelation, uh, you know, apocalyptic genre, we call it. Well, it's necessary to go through all of the steps uh, that were already given to us in the other parts of the Bible, the older parts of the Bible, the Old Testament, the books of Daniel, and the other other passages that we kind of hit during the study. There's so many prophecies that it would just take years if I were to go through all of them in the in the, you know given the context that they really do so we had to kind of go through some of them in a very a brief fashion but you can see on my screen we're already worked our way through through to topic nine and we're finishing up the second half that is part two of yeshua's all of it discourse which is matthew chapter 24 which has its parallels in mark chapter 13 as well as luke chapter 17 and luke chapter 21 and eventually we're we're going to finish out this section and turn to topic 10 next which will probably happen right around the beginning of the year i'm thinking the time frame should fit around that where we're going to start talking about a topic that is somewhat controversial it is the rapture yeah we're gonna take topics 10 11 and 12 to deal with rapture views we'll start with an overview of the rapture what it is what it isn't according to my understanding. Then we will look at topic 11, which is making a case for what is known as the pre-wrath view of the rapture. There's about four popular views out in um, Christian circles today. And we'll talk about a view that the, 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 per, the, the perspective that I have come to embrace, which is known as the pre-wrath view. And then eventually for topic 12, we'll talk about rapture use of final analysis and kind of sum up where we've, uh, what we looked at and see if we can make sense of the different views out there. And how is this topic relevant for us today? Should we even be focusing on it? I can tell you right away, even though it's a bit of a divisive issue, I don't believe we should be fighting over it. <coughs> we certainly don't want to be dividing over it. Um, rather, the Word of God should be unifying us. So, no matter which view we take, we need to major on the majors and minor on the minors and f put our focus where the Bible puts its focus. And ultimately, no, I can tell you right up front, no matter which rapture view you hold to, in time perspective, all of that is washed out if you don't have a genuine faith in Messiah Yeshua, the one who is coming Black, back to planet Earth. If you you have no faith in Him, if you don't believe in Him personally, if you've not been pardoned of your sins and forgiven personally, if you don't have that relationship, well, then your rapture view is worthless because Yeshua is coming back to uh, a people group that He knows is His own. They know Him and He knows them. And if you don't know Yeshua, then you're going to be in a world of hurt because when the Lord returns, he's going to roar like a lion. He's not coming back like the humble, um, speechless lamb that he was the first time where he, you know, opened not his mouth and, you know, they struck him and he didn't respond. Well, this second time that he comes back, he's going to roar like the lion of Judah that he is. And if you're not found to be on the righteous side of that equation, then you're going to be in trouble. So let's 
do our part to focus on what we need to do as individuals first, and that's come to terms with God's salvation plan, with God's good news. It's good news that Yeshua died for you and, and shed his lifeblood for you. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. And so, yes, judgment is coming upon wicked humanity, but God has provided a way for us to have a relationship with him so that we can be rescued from that. But at the same time, he is giving us this mandate that we need to tell others about this good news. So let's be about our Father's business. Amen? Amen. All right, let's jump into the study. So we've got topic nine, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, and we're right in the middle of Matthew chapter 24, and we are working our way kind of systematically down to the end of the chapter. We just read this section that you can see in front of us, the parable of the fig tree, and we're kind of right in the middle of that. So let me read just those... There we go. Let me just read this section again, and this will poise us for this next section, which is really also going to be a bit, could be a bit controversial, a bit uh, divisive, where we're going to be talking about no one knows the day or the hour, and we're looking at the timing of the return of Yeshua. But before that, let's just finish up this section. We might get into starting in verse 36 tonight. We'll see. We've got a whole hour. So, Yeshua recorded these words for us, or the Holy Spirit uh, recorded these words for us that were spoken by our Lord and Master. Starting in verse 32 of chapter 24, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branch has become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. And then verse 33, So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. And then verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Amen. I'm glad they won't pass away. Well, we're entertaining this idea that Yeshua is having this dialogue on the Mount of Olives with his disciples about the end time scenario known as the 70th week of Daniel, or it's popularly called the seven-year tribulation by many Christians. Although I myself don't personally subscribe to a full seven-year tribulation. Rather, if I look through some of the charts... Uh, for instance, this first chart that we've been borrowing, when we parallel Matthew 24's details, the signs, the incidents, the outline, the agenda that our Lord gave to the disciples that time, we can see that it parallels perfectly with what he went on to tell John as he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and he penned the letter that today is known as the book of Revelation. And when we look at the parallels one-to-one, we can see in the Matthew 24 listing, that there are all these details that later on John was given seals that would match chronologically exactly what we're talking about, what Yeshua was talking about, what we're reading about. And so we're already down to the point where we've looked at seals one through five, and we're now kind of hovering around the sixth seal, which are called the the celestial disturbances on this chart. And we're working our way towards this rapture, which is the interlude of of Revelation chapter 6, or starting in chapter 7, working way towards the day of the Lord's wrath, which is the seventh seal in John's uh, reckoning. Well, we also looked at another chart, which is helpful to see the 70th week from a glance. We remember that Daniel was given this time frame way back when he wrote his book and working our way through certain key chapters in the book of Daniel, like chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and then 10, 11, and 12, 
we can see that this 70th week contains not just the seals down at the bottom of your screen that John was given, but we can see that Daniel was given a general timeline of three and a half years and three and a half years that are split neatly right down the middle with the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist marches into the temple which isn't even rebuilt yet, but marches into the temple, defiles it, sets up some form of statue or some figure or photo, or we're not sure exactly, but he sets up something that represents himself, like a statue of Zeus, perhaps, and he declares himself to be God and demands that all the world worship him as God, right? Go figure. A human saying that he's God. I find that kind of an interesting parallel given the fact that there's so many people out there who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, and yet the Antichrist is going to do that exact thing. He's going to claim to be God. He's going to demand um, worldwide worship of himself. Of course, the epicenter is Jerusalem, and yet the ripple effect will be felt worldwide as he begins this intense persecution of the Jewish people, kicking off or what, initiating what is known on this chart as the Great Tribulation. That's why I don't call the full seven years the Tribulation. But the Great Tribulation kicks off after the midpoint, and Satan incarnate, a.k.a. the Antichrist, will go on this rampage, killing as many Jews as he can, making even the Holocaust pale by comparison, according to Yeshua's words, right? These days will be, the, the intense persecution of these days will be such that there will never be, again, there hasn't been anything like it, and there will never again be anything uh, after this. So he goes around killing Jews, but many of them flee into the wilderness, just like Yeshua told us. When you see these events happening, flee into the desert, flee into um, wherever you can, just get up and get out. And yet, when the Antichrist can't reach the Jews because of the supernatural protection that God's going to be giving them, he's going to turn his intense hatred against Christians, right? The offspring of the woman mentioned in Revelation chapter 12. So, looking at this brief overview, we can see that there's this event that cuts short the Great Tribulation, which is um, indicated by the sixth seal, which are the signs in the sky, the cosmic disturbances. And this event that cuts short the Great Tribulation, which is what we're going to turn to right now tonight, is known by a few different names. It's the rapture on the positive side where it's the rescue of God's people from harm, this, this violent snatching away, the Greek word is harpazo, from which the Latin raptura gave rise to the English word rapture. Well, that's the positive side. That's the blessed hope, the resurrection that Paul spoke about in the book of First Corinthians that he wrote about again in the Thessalonian letters where he told them to look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Well, this language of rapture is good news for only those of us who are believers. But the rapture itself, which cuts short the, the Great Tribulation, is connected back-to-back, as we're going to find uh, eventually, with the initiation of this terrible time period that was spoken about way back in the Old Testament, known as the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord is the wrath of God that has been reserved for wicked humanity, rebellious humans, who have turned their hearts away from God, like we read about in Psalm chapter 2, they, they have devised schemes of how they can overthrow God and throw off His judgments and His righteous standards and reject His Messiah. They have, they have turned their hearts away from the love of the truth. They do not 
uh, embrace the gospel truth. They are those who are uh, written about by Paul in the first uh, chapter of Romans towards the very end there. They are rebellious towards towards parents. They are lovers of themselves and of pleasure, and they, they, they continually seek after uh, wickedness and destruction. So God has to give them over to a debased mind and uh Paul uh, uh, warns those in the less in the Thessalonian churches that he's even going to send a strong delusion to this a group of people who has rejected him. So the day of the Lord is 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 uh this time period that God is pouring out his wrath which has been stored up by these very people against him. He's going to pour this day of the Lord wrath out on them. This is contained in the seals and the I'm sorry, contained in the seventh seal which contains all the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. Well, the good news is that we believers will be raptured prior to that, but the earth will not be left without some hope there will be some witnesses there will be the according to my understanding the two witnesses that will arrive on planet earth around the midpoint of the week there will also be the 144,000 uh witnesses from jewish uh from every jewish tribe that will also be in operation during that time so god will still be dealing with israel to bring her to her knees so that she can be prepared to receive her messiah at the end of the 70th week which is the final three and a half years that's that yellow arrow pointing to the right on this slide jesus will rule and reign in jerusalem uh eventually but he has to do damage control with the antichrist who will still be alive at that point in time at the Battle of Armageddon, which will be the final end of this slide. So that's kind of the overview. This view that I'm holding to known as a pre-wrath is essentially the description of God rescuing his people from harm's way pre or prior to the wrath of God being poured out, but not prior to the wrath of man and Satan that will be taking place on planet Earth through what's known as the Great Tribulation. So we've got man's intense anger and hatred and rebellion of god which will cause wars and rumors of wars and and destruction here and there i mean the devil doesn't even have to work very hard since we've got wicked humanity just killing each other on their own right the intense hatred that humans have for one another our lord described it this way because of wickedness the love of many will grow because of lawlessness the love of many will grow cold and this doesn't just include the love of those within the church I believe it includes those within the general scope of humanity as well. Uh, humanity will just turn darker and darker. Darkness will uh, proliferate. It will, uh, wickedness will, um, what we might call mature. But don't worry, righteousness will also be maturing at the same time. So, according to this chart, God's wrath won't be poured out until the latter half of the day of the lord of the, of the seventh week instead of being poured out across the entire seven years looking at a different slide we can see that the seventh week of daniel uh is neatly divided between three and a half years and three and a half years which if you think about it we're going to be turning towards the timing of the rapture like when will the lord return and we have to remember that there are events described by biblical authors as some form of gathering together right of the elect we call that the rapture <clears throat> that which coincides with what we also read about in other passages as the resurrection paul described that and this is a mystery it was not given to the old testaments in detail the old testament saints in detail and yet god knew it and that's the biblical definition of mystery it's not something that cannot be known or something that is only known by initiates rather it's a truth that was formerly hidden from the people in the tanakh 
the Old Testament uh, saints, and yet now has been revealed since the time period of Yeshua's living on planet Earth, aka the Apostolic Scriptures, the writers of the New Testament. So Paul says in the um, in his writings that this is a mystery of the resurrection that we will not all sleep but we shall all be changed that famous verse that's posted over the doorways of many baptist church nurseries right where all the little babies are sleeping we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed right speaking of changing their diapers a little bit of humor thrown in there well this is a mystery which is why we can't clearly see it in the old testament but we now know that this resurrection coincides with the rapture, the gathering together of believers unto the Lord himself. Well, that takes place after the Great Tribulation, according to all the time uh, chronology that we can gather through certain verses. When we look at this particular slide here, which is a continuation of the previous slide, we can see all of these, what we might call convergences before the seventh seal that we're going to be talking about eventually. But now let's jump right into where we left off with David Guzik's notes on Matthew 24. David Guzik is a Christian pastor. I believe by last check that he's a pre-trib uh, Christian author. I don't hold to the pre-trib position myself, but his notes are so well put together and yet concise. They're not too long and drawn out that I'm borrowing them for this part of my commentary here. They're available at um, EnduringWord.com, and I put a little a link in the description to the YouTube video. If you're watching this YouTube video, go check it out there. You can uh, read through commentaries on every book of the Bible and every verse, and they're um, made available for free, which is really a blessing. So we're looking at this passage uh, here, where we're uh, we're looking at the passage that we just read here, where these are the words of our Lord and Master. He says, "Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place." So here are David Guzik's notes. Here he says, "This statement of Jesus is one of the central reasons many have looked for all or." most of the events of this chapter, so we're talking about Matthew chapter 24, to be fulfilled in AD 70, approximately 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. Of course, there's a group of denominational Christians known as preterists who believe that nearly all of the events spoken of by our Lord in Matthew 24 were fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the uh, attack on Jerusalem. I don't hold to the preterist position. I hold to a position known as futurist, which means the 70 AD destruction of the temple formed a partial fulfillment of prophecies that were given way back in Daniel and prophecies that were given by Yeshua and prophecies that were given by the, um, the letters that Paul wrote in Thessalonians. So, Part of what was spoken in the Bible did take place in 70 AD in partial fulfillment, or what we might call prophetic telescoping fashion, where we have a near-term event that is enacted to some detail that serves as a kind of shadow, a forerunner of what would come later on in fullness or uh, in totality, meaning the prophecy is finally filled up. <coughs> Excuse me. The prophecy is finally filled up when the final event 
is uh, unfolds on planet Earth. So some of what was prophesied took place in 70 AD, but most of it is going to take place in the future, and I believe the very near future. This is why I believe that when John penned his letter in the book of Revelation, that the near part had already passed, and so most, if not all, of John's revelation would apply to a future event or future events, although uh, John does jump backwards per what John, but what Yeshua gives him. He jumps backwards a little bit in, in time to show certain events that took place prior to his uh, writing the letter, obviously. So let's keep reading David Guzik here and um, work our way towards what we're going to be talking about. Again, uh, we're, we're priming ourselves for talking about the rapture event, the rescuing of the righteous from harm's way, really. If 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 the Lord didn't cut short the rep, the, the uh, tribulation that we're going to that we've read about, according to Yeshua's own words, no flesh would be saved. The immediate context of the no flesh would be Jewish lives right there in the epicenter in Israel, where the the fire is going to be the hottest, where the persecution is going to be the most intense, where Antichrist's intense rage and hatred, which of course is fueled by Satan himself, will be the most um, pronounced in these coming uh, days of tribulation, and yet, because of the fact that believers are spread around the world as well as Jewish people, well, then he's not just going to stop in Israel. He's going to uh, spill his campaign out into the rest of the world, wherever Jews can be found, wherever Christians can be found, he's going to be after us. So, the Lord promised that those days would be cut short by the rescue, by the rapture, by the snatching away uh, where Yeshua meets us in the air, right, both dead and living. He resurrects the dead, and the living are joined together with those who were resurrected, and we, we go to be with the Lord. But, as we're working our way towards that, we're reading about this, the fact that Yeshua is telling his disciples, there are signs that are going to precede these events. Now, he's going to eventually tell them that no one knows the day or the hour, and that has caused a lot of Christians to say, well... This means we're just clueless and in the dark. But I'm going to try to make a case over the, the next few studies that that's not really what Yeshua was trying to say, that you need to be in the dark. We don't know the exact day and the exact hour, but I believe the context demands that Yeshua wants us to know the season and the approximation. So we're working our way towards that argument. Let's keep going. Yet as previously, this is Guzik again, yet as previously argued to assert this, right, to talking about the preterist position that everything was fulfilled in 70 AD, to assert this is to greatly stretch the most natural interpretation of the abomination of desolation, of the severity of the Great Tribulation, of the cosmic signs, and of the coming of the Son of Man. If we were to take all the details that Yeshua spoke about in this chapter and try to collapse all of them into 70 AD, I think we're going to have to be really doing damage to the scriptures. I mean, we're going to have to say that the second coming took place in 70 AD. The rapture took place in 70 AD. The abomination of destination took place in 70 AD. The binding of Satan in the book of Revelation took place in 70 AD. There's, you know, the, the Battle of Armageddon. Took, there are a lot of details that are in time that certainly couldn't possibly be taken place in 70 AD unless you simply grossly spiritualize away everything and say that there was a kind of a spiritual second coming. So, I think it's better to read it at face value. And as Guzik says, 
it's better to let the, those passages have their most natural meaning like I do and fit this promise into that framework. So he continues, the generation, when he says this generation shall not pass until all these things take place, um, some people say, well, this is proof that this must have been the 70 AD because when Yeshua was giving these words to the disciples, it was in the 30s, Yeshua hadn't even left planet Earth, Earth yet. And so a generation being about 30 or 40 years some people reckon according to biblical time frame then yeshua was letting his disciples know hey you guys aren't even going to die out before all of these things happen well again partial fulfillment allows for many of those for some of those things to have taken place particularly the very beginning of matthew 24 yeshua said <clears throat> that see all these stones not one is going to be left unturned right well yeshua was prophesying at the very least the destruction of the temple well that did take place in 70 a.d so then that was within a generation. But let's keep reading Guzik here. The generation Jesus meant cannot be the generation of the disciples. And what I mean by that is, and Guzik as well, is that there are other details that Yeshua goes on to talk about that um, indicate that part of it was fulfilled in 70, but the rest must be waiting for a different time. In fact, when Yeshua talks about the generation, the fact that Israel got kicked out of the land shortly after the temple was destroyed, particularly when we moved into the 130s, the fact that Israel got kicked out of the land means that for the generation to um, witness the things that happened, and we're talking about events that are tied to Jerusalem, the events that are tied to the land of Israel, well, then there must be a Jewish presence there, which means once Israel got kicked out, Time had to wait for Israel to come back into the land before some of the events could even find any measure of fulfillment. All right, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Guzik says, because they never saw Jesus returning glory as described in Matthew 24, 30, uh, that's one reason why Guzik and I also believe that this generation or the generation cannot really refer to the disciples' generation. He goes on to say that it is undoubtedly the generation that sees these signs, which I agree with. In context, the generation or this generation means the generation that is present when the end time clock starts ticking again, i.e. the 70th week commences. And if you look at the the schedule, uh, the agenda, the outline of the events, it's a mere seven years. It's not even 30 years or 40 years or whatever people try to say a generational time frame lasts. So this gives us an idea that these events unfold in a very short, terse, quick fashion, not kind of dragged out throughout the decades where some histor historicists like to imagine that the seventh week is kind of stretched out across the span of like 70 years or even 100 years or um, 700 years or something like that. Because it's been nearly 2,000 years since our Lord left these words for the disciples and then they were recorded by the Holy Spirit so that we can read them today. I mean, we certainly could have a case for taking the 70 years I'm sorry, taking the seven years and multiplying them by 100 and saying that the seventh week is really 700 years long where we've got all these famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and, and all these evil men who have risen and died. You know, we've, we've had our Hitlers, our Mussolinis, our um, Saddam Husseins and uh, things like that. We've had different uh, people, you know, Osama bin Laden's. We've had different evil men rise and fall who could 
perhaps maybe fit the description of the Antichrist figure. But I think when Yeshua says this generation will not um, pass away before all these things happen, I think he's cluing us into the fact that it's a very short time frame when all of these things will unfold. And indeed, seven years is not a lot of time. So, Guzik goes on to say that these events and Jesus' return won't be on some, just like what I've been saying, won't be on some 1,000-year timetable, but will happen in succession. All right, let's keep reading Guzik, because we're working our way towards a section of Scripture that I'm really excited about getting to, which is this, verses 36 through verse uh, 41, where we're talking about no one knows the day or the hour, etc., etc. Let's keep going with Guzik. He continues in section two of his notes here. He says it's been suggested that the word generation could also be translated race. And before I studied Guzik or other eschatological uh, Bible studies, I wasn't aware of this. I wasn't ever taught this growing up as a Baptist. And I didn't pick it up when I embraced Messianic Judaism either. But the idea that what Guzik is going to talk about is that some authors, particularly maybe dispensationalists or maybe some of those uh, folks who have a kind of a bit of a problem equating the church with Israel, they try to separate Israel out away from the church. So listen to this explanation for a moment. Some have suggested that the generation could be called race, uh, could be translated, this race will not uh, die out until all these things happen. And it's a problem that the Jewish race would not be extinguished and would survive to the end. The idea that in dispensationalism, if you remember the gentleman who kind of is the father of dispensationalism, um, his, he has a name that is has Darby in it. I can't remember his full name. But Darby had this idea that the church is one entity and that the Jewish people are separate group from God and dispensationally God would deal with the church up to a certain deal with Israel up to a certain time, then put them on pause, deal with the church up to a certain time, then put then rapture them away and then start his clock ticking and dealing with Israel again. And so he was of the opinion that the race of people known as the Jewish people must be around during the time period. And of course part of that is a good thing, right? At least he's saying that the Israel will not uh disappear from the earth. But listen to this explanation that Guzik is just adding, just to let people know. I don't think Guzik holds to it. Uh, if this were indeed race, uh, then Guzik says that this would be a valuable promise, but some commentators, such as France, claim that this is an embarrassingly wrong translation. Uh, he goes on to say that yet others, such as Adam Clark, who strongly believed the events of this chapter uh, were almost all fulfilled in 8070 rights. And then here's some here's a note from someone who's a preterist. Uh, this race, i.e., the Jews, shall not cease from being a distinct people till all the counsels of God relative to them and the Gentiles be fulfilled. So on the one hand, it's not a bad thing to say that we believe that Israel will be around when these times happen, but there is this kind of double-edged um, application when we talk about, well, Israel is going to have to be the one that's going to face all of the persecution and the trouble and the difficulties. The church is going to be rescued away from all of them. But if we look at the 70th week, as we're going to start doing, um, as we're going to continue doing during these studies, we're going to find more and more as we begin to unpeel unpack the and peel back the details about the tribulation and the um, rapture that cuts short the tribulation, we're going to find that if the pre-wrath view has any merit, then it means that God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, not just Israel, but the church, will go through the tribulation that God will cut short with his 
with the rapture and the uh, second coming or the resurrection. It means we need to be prepared one way or the other. So I don't believe that this kind of escapism that's taught by the pre-trib rapture is the best perspective to approach the scriptures with. I don't want to be too harsh because I myself could be wrong. I don't know with 100% certainty that the pre-wrath view is the view that is how it's going to play out. I could be wrong. It could be pre-trib. Yeshua could come back at any moment imminency, but I don't believe that's what's taught. But like I said, I'm not perfect. Uh, my, I'm not a date setter. I'm not saying with 100% certainty that my perspective is the right one. I have to study scriptures just like everyone else does. I'm simply saying that uh, based on the details and based on corroboration of verse against verse, the pre-wrath rapture at this point in view for me at this time of, uh, of this uh, teaching seems to be the perspective that holds the most uh, weight and is the one that's the most accurate. Uh, let's keep going with David Guzik here because now we're going to start getting into a set of scriptures that perhaps could be really, really disturbing to some people. Um, and for others, it's very, very exciting. So let's, let, again, I already read them earlier, but David Guzik's going to quote them one more time. So in case you weren't listening earlier. So point number D, Morin is coming, but from a different approach. All right, starting in verse 36 of Matthew 20. This is a study on eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. My name is Ari ben Lyman Hanavi, and we're working our way towards a study on the book of Revelation, but we're doing our due diligence by working our way through, <coughs> excuse me, working our way through those passages that lead up to the book of Revelation. Remember, when you open your Bible, the book of Revelation is the last book that's in the Bible, which means, by God's design, you should have read the earlier books. Right, the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament, leading up to the book of Revelation. All right, that's kind of the way it works. So let's keep reading. Jesus says on verse 36, Jesus says that that day and hour of his return is unknowable by men and even unknowable by angels. So we're going to start entertaining this discussion about how much can we know? How much did Yeshua reveal? Is the overall sense of his second return, of his second coming, the idea that we're completely in the dark? Are we completely clueless, or are the signs that were given to us meant to give us a sense of of expectancy? Not necessarily urgency up until a certain point, it's just expectancy, but eventually it will be be imminency, I realize that, but for now it's just we need to be expectant because the the, the days are cut, uh, the days are uh, beginning to uh, be cut short, the days are uh, closely approaching, his return is fast approaching. Yeshua says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. I mean, taken in this hyper-literal meaning means that Yeshua is going to be going about his business, uh, whether on heaven or on earth, wherever he's at doing whatever he's doing. And then suddenly the Father is going to say, hey, going to give him a call on his uh, iPhone there. Of course, Yeshua uses an iPhone, right? No, I'm just just joking. But the Father is going to explain to his son, hey, it's time for you to go back to planet Earth and establish the kingdom to do business on Earth. And Yeshua won't have known even the day prior that he's going to be sent back to Earth. It's almost to that extent that the Son doesn't know. Well, at least during his time on Earth, the first time he didn't know. No one, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Does he mean back then he didn't know? Now that he's in heaven, has his Father revealed it to him? We don't know for sure which one it is. But what we do know is that this verse has been taken to mean by many of end-time students of Scripture to mean that Yeshua's return is imminent. 
What does imminency mean? It means he can return before I finish this. Oh, sorry, couldn't finish the sentence because Yeshua returned. That's what it means. That's what many take it to mean that there are no um, events that need to happen prior to his return. But as I've demonstrated in previous studies, and you can go back and listen to those, and I'm going to keep maintaining that I don't believe that's exactly what Yeshua means by imminency or by no one knows the day or the hour. On the flip side, there's a growing number of Messianic Bible teachers and students who believe that this is kind of code for actually there's this holy day, this calendar day, this festival day that has this reputation in Judaism of no one knows the day or the hour. And that phrase is actually kind of a secret code to those who are in the know. Yeshua is kind of looking at his disciples, hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod, that no one knows that they are there the hour. And go and follow that breadcrumb until you figure out what it really means, which is code word for there's actually this festival when it is going to happen. I'm not taking that approach either, although I will mention it in this study. We'll get to it in time uh, when I jump to this part. The Feast of Trumpets and Its Christian Significance, uh, written by uh, David Kiern. And um, so uh, his study here, as you can see on my screen, is about the fall feasts. And it talks about uh, no man knowing the day or the hour and things like that. So we'll get to that in time. Uh, but first, I want to read through. So let me go back up there. Uh, park it there. First, I want to get through David Guzik's notes and talk about this idea of no one knows the day or the hour. And begin to work this idea, through this idea that Yeshua is about to give them not just this indication that you can know the season, but he's also going to um, tell them that when the Son of Man returns, there's going to be this idea of one will be taken and one will be left. And we're going to work our way through this meaning of who's going to be taken and who's going to be left. Is it the righteous that are going to be taken in rapture and, and rescued and the wicked that will be left behind like Tim LaHaye's book series Left Behind? Left Behind to Face the Judgment of God, the Wrath of God? Is that what's going to take place? Or is it rather the flip-flop of that where the um, those who will be taken are the wicked taken in judgment and the left behind are those who are the righteous that will be left behind to rule and reign with the Messiah here on planet Earth. How do we make sense of this taken and left behind language that we're about to um, jump into? All right, so let's work our way towards that. So first we have this uh, part about the day and the hour that no one knows. Here, this is Guzik speaking. Here, Jesus refers back to the original question of Matthew 24, 3. What will be the sign of your coming? Remember, the disciples pose this question. They could have been referring to one sign, or there could actually have been two signs. At the very least, we know that the sixth seal of Revelation, which is the sun turning dark, the moon not giving us light, the stars falling from the sky, the powers of heaven shaken, there's also going to be a great earthquake in one of the passages that's mentioned. Well, all of these things are, at the very least, a sign because they are one of the seals of the book of Revelation that have to be broken before the scroll can be unrolled and the trumpet judgments can be poured out, including the bowl judgments which follow the trumpets. So, 
when Yeshua begins to answer the questions of the disciples about what will be the sign of your coming, at the very least, he does include the Revelation chapter, uh, the Revelation chapter six sixth seal sign, right, which was already foretold way back in Joel's time. The sun going dark, the moon behaving strangely, the stars behaving strangely, etc. So, what I'm calling the cosmic disturbances, at the very least, it includes that. But also, as I've um, proposed, it could very well include what's known as the supernatural brilliance of the glory of God slash Yeshua that will light up the darkened sky as a result of the cosmic darkness that was created by that sixth um, seal. So when we say the sign of your coming, it could be that supernatural brilliance, the, the lightning flashing from the east to the west that he talked about earlier in this chapter. So his answer is somewhat unexpected, saying, of that day and hour, no one knows. So is he trying to warn his disciples, hey, don't try to figure out the time, just sit back, be ready, it's going to happen, but you're going to be completely in the dark? Well, I don't believe that's the case, as we're going to find out. The overall thrust, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but that's okay. The overall thrust of where Yeshua is going with his discussion from this point going forward in his um, dialogue with his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, he's going to be giving these kind of... Um, <coughs> Excuse me, giving these kind of scenarios where he's talking about fig trees and summer is near and as it was in the days of Noah. And then he's going to eventually move into this idea of um, uh, um, the, the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. And so he's eventually working his way towards the idea that you must be ready for my return but as the days get closer and closer if you look at the analogies that i'm going to be giving i'm speaking as if i'm yeshua if you look at the analogies that i'm giving you in each one of them there's this sense of expectancy that you know a kind of an approximation of the nearness of the event the important event but you don't know the exact day or the hour. So don't focus on knowing the day or the hour, but you should be focusing on the proximity, the nearness, the general, the overall season, the, um, the awareness of that something is coming. In other words, don't take the mindset like the rest of the world where you're just completely um, living your life as if nothing important is going to happen. And he uses the analogy of eating and sleeping and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and, and you know, the Noah example that we're going to read out about in a moment. So he's telling his disciples, far from warning them away from trying to figure out how close the, uh, the approach is, his second coming, he's giving them clues that, hey, just like in the days of Noah, as the events get closer and closer to the rains actually commencing on planet Earth, Noah was given more and more details to build the ark, to to gather the animals, to shut the door eventually, and then at some point, God time, God actually uh, let the the, the uh, rain begin falling. But it, but as we got closer and closer to the events, Noah was given more and more details. So perhaps God will give us more and more details in the form of dreams and visions, like Joel talks about your. You know, your people will begin seeing visions and dreams. Nothing trumps the Word of God, though, no matter how important a vision or dream might seem to us. But I do believe that as we get closer and closer to the, the end times, that we will, we, we will, we as God's people will begin to increase our um, sense of this urgency. So let's keep reading in that with that mind frame. Um, we're not children of the, night, of the night and of darkness, like Paul talks in his Thessalonian letters. We're children of the day. We're children of the light because of what God has done on our behalf through his son, Messiah Yeshua. So, 
let's keep reading Guzik here. He continues. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes left in our study here. Uh, the first half, first segment. To give this idea the strongest emphasis, Jesus claimed that his knowledge was that this knowledge was reserved for his father only about exactly when he's going to show up. If Jesus himself, at least during his earthly ministry, like I mentioned earlier, did not know this day and hour, it emphasizes the foolishness of any later person making certain predictions regarding the prophetic timetable. Now, let me just stop and interject just for a split second. Well, no, let me read Guzik's next point here, and then I will um, tell you about some more details that might uh, be worth uh, uh, piquing your interest here. Guzik goes on to say that no one knows, right? Uh, and the bold part, of course, is scripture. He says, based on what he had told us about the abomination of desolation, we might have expected that the exact day and hour could be known. Listen to this for a moment. After all, Daniel set the day of Jesus' return as being exactly 1290 days after the abomination of desolation, which we read about in Daniel 12, 11. So, um, according to Guzik, let me keep reading, in this, there is a dilemma. Now, he's saying a dilemma, but he doesn't truly believe there's a dilemma. He's just trying to pique your curiosity as to the seeming paradox of how can no man know the day of the hour, and yet at the same time, Daniel was foretold up to the day when certain events would take place. Here's the dilemma, according to Guzik. Of course, he doesn't truly mean a dilemma, but listen. How can the day of Jesus coming be both completely unknown and at the same time be known to the day, according to Daniel 12, 11? So, riddle me that for a moment, okay? Think about that. Here's where I'm going with this. We'll, we'll unpack this later on. We won't do all of it tonight. But if you look at this, uh, these screens that all show the 70th week, right? Either this one or not that one, but this one or this one or this one or this one. If you look at all of these, let me park out on... This one should work. When you look at this chart, this is, of course, the 70th week of Daniel. This chart, this time frame is seven years long from start to finish. And yet, there's this part at the very end that if you add up the math of 1260 days plus 1260 days, it ends up to be seven years. But Daniel talked about 1290 days, which means there's an extra month there, an extra 30 days. And then if you keep reading through Daniel, there's actually another 45 days after the 30 days that pushes it out a little bit further, further into what we might call 1330 days or 1300 and something. So the point that Guzik's trying to kind of tease us with is that the return of Jesus that's spoken about in the prof in, in the prophecies and of course by Yeshua himself, it includes this itinerary of events that span uh, the beginning at the rapture all the way to the end of the seventh week with the culmination of the Battle of Armageddon and the establishment of the millennial kingdom by Yeshua himself. So, if Yeshua says that no man knows the day or the hour, does that mean that he's referring to the second coming? Because if he is, well, then he just dis, um, 
he just he just threw Daniel under the bus. He just disagreed with Daniel because Daniel was told that certain events, i.e. the coming of the Son of Man that was spoken about in the vision in Daniel chapter 7, would take place at the end of this seven-year time period, exactly 1260 days later, the establishment of the kingdom, the king being get, uh, given to this son of man. And yet at the same time, Yeshua says, no man has a day, knows the day or the hour. I believe the answer to the dilemma is that Yeshua is referring to the rapture event, that no man knows the day or the hour. But when it comes to the setting up of his kingdom, well, it's, it's right in the timetable, uh, right in line with Daniel's prophecy of at the end of the seventh week, the Antichrist will be uh, destroyed. He will be defeated by Yeshua and heaven's armies that ride down, uh, uh, down to planet Earth on white horses, and the uh, judgment of the Antichrist takes place, and then the end of the seventieth week um, is drawn to an end, and the kingdom will be established by Yeshua. So all of that is at the end of this seven-year time slide, time time frame. That would be near what we might call the twelve hundred sixty-day time frame. We can know those days because Daniel was pro uh, foretold that. Which means, when we go back to Guzik, the dilemma of how can we know the day or the hour is must be referring to Jesus' uh, rapture, the rapture of the saints, which is the initiating event of the coming of Yeshua, the prosia, the Greek word that refers to the presence of the king or the presence of the, the important one who comes to visit a city, and his itinerary includes uh, several different events as he enters the city and then parades around through the city, through the main square, through the main street or whatever, down Main Street, with all pomp and circumstance and all pageantry and the people there to greet him, and then he goes about his business, and then he eventually leaves the city. Well, all, all of that is part of his prosia, his coming. So let's kind of work through some of these details with that in mind. This really, again, was just a teaser. We'll, we'll unpack more of that when we get to the rapture topic in my study. Topic number eight, or topic number 10, I'm sorry. So let's look at point number two, which is verses 37 and 39. Jesus says that his coming will be when the world as it was, when the world as is as it was in the days of Noah. Now, I've heard a lot of teachers um, commonly say, well, this is describing the state of affairs in the world when he says, when as it was in the days of Noah. Like, let's just read the verses here. These are Yeshua's words. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he gives some details. Whereas in the days before the flood, and then notice he talks about the general state of affairs, which is true. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And there's nothing wrong with those things, right? You have to eat and drink or else you'll die. And I don't mean drink alcohol there. I mean, I drink at least uh, water, but they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving a marriage. It's not wrong, right? These are uh, commandments of God to marry and populate the earth and things like that. So there's nothing generally speaking that was wrong with what they were doing, but the sense of what Yeshua was trying to convey is that they were oblivious to the destruction that was about to befall them. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day. Notice, right until the day, we're going to highlight part of that later on. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all the way. Question, who didn't know? Was it Noah that didn't know about what was going on or was it the general populace of the world? 
Ah, when Yeshua says no man knows the day or the hour, is he really kind of cluing us in using this no example that it's the general world in advance that doesn't have a clue about what's going on? Not only do they know, do they not know the day or the hour, but they don't even, they don't even know the season. But you disciples, by contrast, even though you also might not know the day or the hour, you do and should know the season because of the signs, because of the, Yeshua's going to give them all these examples here in a moment. So, also, Yeshua says, will the coming of the Son of Man be? So, is he really just letting us know that it's the general state of affairs where people are just clueless? Well, if that's the case, they've really been that way all along. Even since from the day that Yeshua gave these words to his disciples, the general uh, um, state of affairs in the world from humanity's perspective has generally always been eat, drink, marry, give in marriage. Uh, because that's what we do, right? We're humans, and we've got to look out for number one, which is ourselves. We've got to take care of our own business. We don't have time to think about God and Jesus and the Bible and all that other religious stuff. We're, we're not into all that. We don't need all that. You know, we need to just take care of business as we know it. Well, that's just the mindset of the world. But wait a minute. It's always been like that, really. So could there also be some additional insights into what Yeshua was perhaps hinting at when he says, as it was during the days of Noah? I believe that, yes, we could make a case that he could also have been referring to the idea that the timing of the events during the days of Noah, when you contrast what the those who were going to be destroyed knew versus what Noah knew, we look at the general population that was about to be washed away by the flood, and they didn't have a clue right until the very day. But when you look at Noah, and you look at how God describes the details leading up, going all the way back to at least 120 years prior to him even building the ark, Noah is given some broad general strokes of details brushstrokes of, hey, I'm going to destroy the earth in a certain amount of time. All flesh before me is corrupted. I'm going to wipe everybody out. Oh, by the way, Noah, you're going to survive, you and your family, you and your sons and your daughters. In fact, God told him in advance that he was going to have sons and daughters-in-law, right? Even before he had those kids, God told him, you and your family are going to survive. You're going to build an ark, and um, that's how you're going to survive. And so Noah's given details as he begins to get closer and closer to the day, and I'm kind of fast-forwarding through all of this for you so, so you don't have to go back and read genesis chapter um uh, six and seven and eight for on your own i'm giving it to you like in summary form but noah was given more and more detail as he builds the ark god keeps telling him more and more detail hey by the way the rain's gonna come <clears throat> In uh, a week's time, the rain's going to start falling. Um, oh, by the way, you're going to need to get all these animals and get them on the ark. They're going to come to you. You don't even have to gather them. They're going to come to you in two by two, except for the clean animals. There are going to be seven of those. And you're going to get them all in the ark. You're going to have this food, and you're going to get on the ark. And then the rains are going to fall. And so eventually, as we get closer and closer to the time when the flood waters commenced and the doors were shut, God took Noah and his family and got them into the ark and then shut the doors and then the rain fell and then the people realized at that point in time the wicked humanity on the outside of the doors hey we're doomed right unless we can get in that boat or build our own boats in enough time we don't know what's go even going on right they're just in panic mode and they should have been but the point I'm trying to emphasize is that when we talk about just as it was in the days of Noah, yes, the state of affairs was where people just didn't know what was going on. But let's look at it from Noah's perspective. If it will be just as it was in the days of Noah, well, then those who were in the know, 
at least had a sense of the the expectancy that there's going to be something coming as God gave progressive revelation to Noah leading up as it got closer and closer to the event more and more details were given to Noah he was given more and more insights right up until almost to the point where he knew the day that the rains commenced because God shut the door and shut him in and then it rained and rained and rained for 40 days and 40 nights well noah was at least at that point in time privy to a lot of information so that's the point i'm trying to make is that as we get closer and closer to this time frame it appears that we will be um having a more of a sense of understanding more of these cryptic scriptures i'm not saying that this means that we're going to be adding to scripture itself i don't i'm not that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is that there are events that are going to be taking place, such as the signing of a seven-year peace treaty with the Antichrist, the building of, a, of another temple, the commencement of the animal sacrifices, the abomination of desolation in the midpoint of the week, the commencement of the tribulation. So as we're seeing these events unfold, Christians will have a measured amount of insight because the time is short. We're, we should be with some amount of accuracy able to go, wow, we're in the middle of the 70th week right a bottom age of desolation hello we're at the three and a half year mark that means we can start looking at the end of the 70th week the the final 42 months 1260 days uh three and a half years etc etc we can begin to realize oh wait a minute let's look for some witnesses let's look for the 144,000 to be sealed sometime soon let's let's look for certain events coming down the road so that's the point i'm trying to make all right let's keep going we've got about five minutes left i just want to take a bite out of this we won't be able to finish this but guzik reminds us as the days of noah were so we've got jesus explaining what he meant by the days of noah it means life centered around the normal things which is i i'm not disagreeing with guzik i'm saying that there could be a little bit more here too when jesus says as it was in the days of noah life centered around the normal things eating drinking marrying and given in marriage in other words life will be business as usual reprobate perhaps but usual right that's just the way the world works let's keep going eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage uh i believe ff F. bruce here notes that quote some charge these with sinister meaning eating referring to hinting at gluttony because often used of beasts uh, though also in the sense of eating of men marrying and giving in marriage uh euphemistically pointing at sexual licenses on both sides and that's the end of the quote from uh well part of the end of the quote from bruce yet he comes to the conclusion um guzik says quote the idea rather seems to be that rather all things went on as usual as if nothing were going to happen end quote and i take that view as well when the time gets close to the lord returning even though we're going to have the signing of the peace treaty with israel and the antichrist even though the uh temple will be rebuilt or some sort of sacrificing device such as a tabernacle or something that permits uh sacrifices to be um brought onto an altar even though We'll be having wars and rumors of war and pestilence and all kinds of earthquakes in diverse places and even though we'll have this persecution and the tribulation and the abomination of desolation commence and the mark of the beast um implemented and etc et even though we'll have all these things that are spoken about in the bible 
that you, that anyone can read, that anyone on planet Earth can pick up a Bible and read in nearly every language on planet Earth, the Bible has been translated. Anyone will have access to this information that our Lord left us. And yet still, because of the blindness of wicked humanity, because of the reprobate, reprobate nature of humans, still things will go on as usual, business as usual. They don't care about what God is doing on planet Earth. But we as believers should have a different approach. It's following Guzik, we should also remember, he says, that the days of Noah were also marked by violence and demonic oppression. That's also going to be something that should be different about the approaching days as opposed to perhaps maybe even today. <clears throat> maybe I'll kind of draw my study to a close with uh, this part. We've got, so let's park it like that. We've got, we've got demonic activity in the world. We've had demonic activity since demons were um, going around causing problems since the fall right since man has uh been around on planet earth demon activity has been present as well read your bible right demons have been causing problems but apparently as we get closer and closer to the end of the age and the return of yeshua demonic activity is going to ramp up for one thing satan according to revelation chapter 12 will be cast down to planet earth he'll have this intense wrath that he wants to um kind of offload on human beings <clears throat> Since he realizes that he can't really do anything about harming Yeshua, he tried as best as he could to kill uh, the Son of God, and he thought he did when he had him crucified, but little did he know that he was just um, signing his own death sentence. So, the Son of God was resurrected. Hallelujah, right? Buk Hashem. And yet, the, uh, the, the adversary is still hard at work trying to deceive humans and to uh, harm humans and to destroy uh, men who were created in God's image. And he knows that if he can wipe Israel out, then he will at least do damage to God's prophetic plan that God, that God has with Israel as a light to the, to the surrounding nations. So, what we've got is the devil being cast to planet Earth at some point, I believe it times it factors in uh, with the midpoint of the week, where he infills the Antichrist and he basically um, becomes the Antichrist or the Antichrist becomes Satan. If, uh, however you think of it, it's kind of like a perverse incarnation, an evil version of the incarnation where Satan where the Antichrist is Satan incarnate. But along with that, when we read through the book of Revelation, we find as, as well as the, Paul's Thessalonian letters, we find that there's going to be this strong demonic oppression, this strong demonic activity that will be uh, marked by this time period, especially after the midpoint of the week. So, when we're talking about the days of Noah, there was a lot of violence, there was a lot of demonic oppression, there was a lot of fallen angelic activity. Remember, with the flood, or prior to that, there was the sons of God who came into the daughters of men, which many believe would have been the fallen angels who were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing with the daughters of, with, with human beings and creating this race of giants known as the Nephilim and things like that. I think there's a little bit of truth to that. I hold to a little bit of that. But uh, in other words, pick up any copy of, um, I think it's Mike, Dr. Michael Heiser's books, um, and he, he goes into a lot of detail about this. And I'll close with this tonight. But as we're approaching the final um, uh, events that are foretold by Yeshua, it's not just wicked humanity that's going to be going about their own uh, business. Little do they realize that there is the supernatural element that's going to start heating up people. 
And that's a really scary thought because humans have never really seen the supernatural up close and personal. I mean, we've had demonic activity here and there in other places in the world, but it's largely been isolated to certain places where there's hot spots around the world of kind of um, of demonic control um, over certain people groups. But as we begin to watch this, this uh, sense of darkness, um, uh, increase in the world how can humans go about their daily lives i mean it's just it just it boggles my mind to think that um the amount of demonic activity that's going to be ramping up is should be so severe that humans must surely be aware that there's a supernatural element to all of um these things going on and this should cause them to stop and think is there something that i can do as a human being to um, deal with this. I mean, therapy's not going to cut it. My bank account's not going to rescue me. Is there someone or something that I that I can turn to? And yeah, men are going to turn to false religions and things like that. They always have. But the word of God will also be here, and we will be here to the extent that God has not raptured us yet. We will be here, and we will be able to witness to these people and explain to them, yes, there is an answer to all the confusion that's taking place around you, and his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. Embrace him if you want to find the answer to the dilemma that you're facing, if you want to find some escape, if you want to find some meaning to your life. Yeshua is the answer. Omain, Omain. So let's close our study down tonight with that. We'll pick this up next week where we're dealing with this idea of no one knowing the day or the hour and um, life being like it was when the days of Noah and one man was in, two men in the field, one was uh, taken and the other was left. What does that all that mean? We'll talk about that next week, but that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, 
uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response of Biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. And let's take the next 30 minutes and continue where we've been going. We've been looking at the book of Proverbs, particularly just one verse, where it's recorded, I, wisdom, was appointed from eternity from the beginning. And if we look at the full verse, uh, verse 23, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Um, I like to back up to verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. And then I continue through verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water. And what we've been learning is that there is a denomination of Christianity known as Unitarianism, of which biblical Unitarianism is the primary focus of our contrasting study. <clears throat> biblical Unitarianism, non Trinitarian outfit. Give me a second, guys. I just realized I forgot to set my uh, clock here. So let me do that real quick. I'll just do it while I'm chatting with you, leaving the window open. There we go. And let's start that timer. There we go. So Biblical Unitarianism and BiblicalUnitarian.com is the website we're borrowing. Biblical Unitarian says, in a nutshell, there's only one God, and he's the only God there is. There isn't room for another deity known as Jesus. There isn't room for another deity known as the Holy Spirit. Instead, in their perspective, there's God and God alone who is numerically identical with the person known as the Father in the New Testament, the Father of Jesus Christ. And so from their perspective, God is the one God, singular God, the single deity, and he's the only person. So when the Shema states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, even though we Trinitarians understand that the being that there's one God yet three persons, God is complex in his triunity. The biblical Unitarian would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one person. Not just one God, but one person. Even though the verse doesn't say that, that's what they imply in their theology. Well, we biblical Trinitarians reject that because of the copious amounts of truth that were hidden formerly in the Old Testament, but revealed to us in the time period of the New Testament that let us know that, yes, there is one God, and yet Yeshua is one with God. In essence, Yeshua is very God, and yet he is a second person of the Trinity of God, of which the Holy Spirit is a third Trinity. Well, what do the Biblical Unitarians say about Yeshua? Well, he's just a human. He's a human being that was born in the first century. He came from his mother, Mary, and Joseph, and he was brought into the world supernaturally, yes, but he lived a human life, and he died a human's death, and he was exalted to sit at the right hand of God, and therefore he is the object of salvation that is put forth by God, and all men must place their faith in Jesus in order to be saved, yes, but nevertheless, he's still fully human. 
He's an exalted man. He's been deified in, in the sense that he is glorified and sits at the right hand of God, and therefore all men must bow down and worship him, not as God, but as God's chosen Messiah and representative agent of salvation. Therefore, the earth and the universe weren't created through Jesus, the human, or even Jesus, the demigod, like the Arians slash Jehovah's Witnesses teach, rather Jesus or created through the eternal word of God like we Trinitarians teach. Rather, the universe was created through God and through the thought of Jesus. Where was Jesus during the creation? He was in the mind of God as a thought, and as God was creating the universe, he was thinking about Jesus. And that's how Paul can say that by him and for him and through him were all things created. That's how John can say, in the beginning was the word, where was with God, the word was God. All things were created through him. Well, it's through the thought of Jesus that God was that God was creating all things, but it's still God that was creating things. And that's why God can say in the Isaiah chapters that where it's the it's the God, it's God versus the gods, Isaiah starting around chapter 40 and working way through chapter 45 god is challenging these false gods he's saying you know were there any other gods around when i created everything i know of none there's no other god except me there's no other god beside me there's none beside me and so the biblical unitarians point to those verses as proof positive that god aka the father was the only god there was there couldn't have been room for this other demigod, many god, many me, lesser god, lesser Yahweh, whatever you want to call him in their perspective. So we're looking at this verse in the book of Proverbs, and when it says that wisdom was possessed by God at the beginning, <clears throat> before his ways of old, when it says that wisdom was established, notice these verses as you're building on, on one another. The Lord possessed me, kanini rishit, possessed me at the beginning of his way. <clears throat> Verse 22. Verse 23, from everlasting, I was established, me'olam nisachti me'rosh, uh, the Hebrew says, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, be'en ta'chomot um, cholalti. Uh, I was brought forth. So we're, we're stacking up these verbs of of being brought forth, of being established, and being uh, possessed by God at the beginning. Who is this wisdom character, or what is it? The Biblical Unitarian is going to tell us this is a personification or a, um, a type of describing one of God's attributes, but um, doing it in such a way so that it's not really speaking of a second person, but rather it's just speaking of God and His power. The Trinitarian answer is split 50-50. Some Trinitarians say that Lady Wisdom is, in fact, Yeshua in his pre-incarnate form, similar to the Word made flesh in John 1.1. The, the eternal Word of God is, in fact, Wisdom, and thus Yeshua is Wisdom. That's one perspective from the Trinitarian camp. The other perspective is a little closer to the Biblical Unitarian camp in that um, it is Yeshua, it, it's just a, a sense of um, personification. It's not really that we need to have wisdom being um, Yeshua, rather it's just a type of, of um, a representation of, of who Yeshua is or who Yeshua is, what Yeshua's, what God's power is as demonstrated through Yeshua, but doesn't have to be Yeshua. So there's kind of two views to go there, and we're working our way through both of them. Let me go ahead and read the notes that I have prepared. We embarked on this part about some brief Hebrew comments, and I read through this and kind of worked our way through it. I'm going to start back uh, so I can get a segue and read through it again, but at this time I'm not going to um, stop and elaborate. I'll just keep reading. 
do these in my own notes, which are not available anywhere online. They're only available as we work our way through these studies on YouTube and iTunes. So just listen up. The Hebrew word for this, I wrote this uh, earlier this year, probably, I think, I, I seem to remember it was March or something, but um, listen to these notes here. Uh, the Hebrew word for begotten in Psalm 2-7 is um, Yelid Ticha. And the reason I jump back into the, to the book of Psalms before I jump into the book of Proverbs that I mentioned is because when we're talking about God's nature and the way God introduces His Son to human beings, He uses words that are reminiscent of what we humans are familiar with. So he uses the language of humans to describe the relationship that he has with his son. And part of that language includes this language of begotten or begettle or giving birth to. And yet, so we know that God didn't physically give birth to Yeshua, right? God is a is pure spirit and he doesn't have um, a, a body that could facilitate what we would know as just simply human begetting, right? The way women give birth to babies. Well, that's not exactly what goes on, but he uses that language, right? And it, this culminates in passages like, for God so loved the world that he gave, gave his only what? Begotten son. His only unique son who was, who, who issues forth as it were, from the Father in this eternal begetting, according to the Trinitarian understanding. And yet, at the same time, it's not that Jesus was brought into existence at a certain point in history, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would imagine, who are Arian in their theology. Um, so, in that regards, at least the Biblical Unitarians at least have a bit, a bit of a leg to stand on, because they see that Jesus was not created by God. He's not a creature. He's not a construct. He's not a thing that God whipped up, like the Jehovah's Witnesses like to imagine. Rather, they say, no, Jesus is just an ordinary human being. Like all humans were brought into the world, he came through the birth process like all human beings do. Although, yes, Jesus' birth was supernatural in that Joseph didn't participate in the copulation there. He didn't have to lend his seed to Mary. Thus, it was a virgin birth. I believe they do believe in that. They do hold that. I'm quite certain they do. But yet, at the same time, he's an ordinary human being. The flesh that Jesus wore is the same kind of flesh that I'm wearing right now. It's still 100% human. But we Trinitarians understand that when Jesus is spoken about in the book of Psalms and things like that as, as the begotten of God, right, that earthly king who's um, the foreshadow of the heavenly king, David would have been the earthly king that God says, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And yet, this is a type and shadow, David is a type and shadow of Yeshua, who is the ultimate righteous king that God is going to establish um, on his holy hill, Mount Zion, and sit on the throne of his father, David, and yet sit on the throne of God. Well, begethel here doesn't have to mean the same that it means in human qualities. God can speak of his son being begotten, but we're just simply talking about in the eternal economy of God, the son is subservient to the father in that role of being the son who is of the father, who who is begotten eternally by the father. The father is one who relies on no one for his own begettal. He is ase in that term. It's a kind of a technical term, ase. Um, it means he's without... Um, He's without any necessary support from something outside of him. He's self-existent, is what I mean by ase. So, the son, by comparison, is not ase. 
he is reliant upon the Father to beget him, but only in the eternal sense, because Yeshua shares the same nature with God. So that's we're talking about a begettal that goes back into eternity. He is forever the Son of God and always has been the Son of the Father. This means that the Father has always been a Father and the Son has always been a Son. That's what we mean by eternal begettal. So this word, um, Yelid Ticha, which is found in Psalm 1 2, forms the part of the beginning of this idea of lady wisdom being brought into the picture or being brought forth. So uh, I went on to say that its root word, um, spelled typo, typo there or for its, um, nope, no, it's not. Its root word is yalad, a word which means, I said earlier, to beget, I'm sorry, to bear, to beget, or to bring forth. It's just a normal word used for um, humans and of animals when um, offspring is brought into the picture. So it's a very normal, generic, average word. But when we talk about Yeshua and God, it has a unique um, sense of the meaning because of the way Yeshua is described as um, eternally existing with God as the Word in His pre-incarnate state. So, I mean, in other words, what I'm saying is that Yeshua has two natures. He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. The divine nature is eternal. He's always existed alongside God. That's what John tells us. He was with He was with God and was God. Prostantheon in the Greek means face-to-face -face with God. He was in an intimate relationship with the Father from the beginning of time, since the Arche, right? In Arche, in Halagos, is what John records for us in the Greek of John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. So, it's only his human nature that has limited time frame that was brought into picture at a certain point in time, thus the incarnation. Okay, I went on to say that in this context, this word refers to the relationship between God and the prophesied messianic king of Israel, who is referred to as God's son, thus the type and shadow of David as the... <clears throat> Son of God, as well as the King of Israel, but was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus as the Son of God and the King of Israel as well. I go on. To say, I went on to say that the equivalent Greek word for begotten in the Septuagint for this passage is gegeneka. Gegeneka uh, is from the root word genao, which is a verb that means to beget, to give birth to, or to produce. So again, it's, it's, it's not an outstandingly um, difficult word to understand. It's just what humans do all the time, right? <clears throat> Let's keep going. Got a little tickle in my throat here that just won't let me talk straight. Give me a second. <clears throat> See if that helps. I went on to say last week, moreover, the Hebrew term, and then we got another term that shows up now here in Proverbs, which is halalti. And halalti means brought forth in Proverbs 8.25. And so this is similar to the idea of, it's it's almost like a synonym, right? Uh, a nuanced, a word that's a, a nuanced to refer to um, begotten, the earlier word that we looked at. It's not the same word, but it has similar meanings, like in synonym fashion. And this particular word, cholalti, um, originates in the root word hul, which means to twist, to whirl, to dance, to writhe, or to bring forth. So it's got some other meanings there that uh, we talked about last time. Proverbs 8.25, in my um, research, refers to the personification of wisdom, which was, per the consensus of most biblical scholars, present before the creation of the world. This is according to my own research. So, um, 
I would go on to say that um, even Unitarian scholars would have to concede that the one and only immutable and all-wise God has surely been in possession of wisdom from since time immemorial. So when I say immutable, God is unchangeable. So if he brought wisdom into the picture at a certain time, then somehow he was not all wise and somehow he changed. He went from being not all wise because he didn't have wisdom to becoming a little bit wiser after he whipped up wisdom in its, in some creative fashion. Well, that doesn't seem to work. Even though the verse says that um, wisdom was cholalti brought forth, right? That doesn't have to mean that it was missing before that. All right, so let's keep reading now. This is where we left off last week. The correlation between these two terms, the the um, in both Hebrew and Greek, the one in Psalm and the one in Proverbs, is that they both describe a relationship between God and His creation. In Psalm two seven, God has a special relationship with the King of Israel. Whether Psalm two seven refers to David or to Jesus or both, right? Remember, I mentioned that the book of Psalms contains this messianic king, which David is that king. He's the highest ranking Israelite of that day. And he's the one from whom the promises were told that uh, your offspring will issue and a king will ultimately be brought into the picture who will rule forever and ever. Well, David knew that he was the highest ranking king at that time. Even when Solomon was born, he knew that Solomon was lesser than he was, right? Solomon was his son. And yet, the Psalms promised that this that one day there would come a king whom David himself would have to call Lord. Right? We read about that. The Lord says unto the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet. So David knew that there was a greater sense of messianic expectation to this king that would come down the line of course this is in line with the promises that god had already told them i'm going to um increase your offspring david i'm going to what did we say i'm gonna you're gonna build me a house speaking of the temple but i'm going to build your house and when god said to david that i'm going to build your house he was speaking of a dynasty that would begin with Solomon and keep going forward until it culminated in Yeshua. So Psalm 2 refers to David or Jesus or both. I'm fine with that. While in Proverbs 8.25, wisdom is an attribute of God that existed before the world was created. So we don't have to say when, when the psalmist, I'm sorry, when the Proverbs says, when we look at um, verse 25 in the English, let me just bring it up here. Um, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. And um, uh, it's here. Beterem um, Harim, that's bef um, uh, uh, before the mountains were brought forth. Hatabau lifne gavulot, I'm sorry, gavuot cholalti. And this last word, let me see if I can highlight it without breaking the click there. Nope, let me scroll up a little bit. I'm running into trouble. What's going on? Okay, um, can't highlight it there, but is that, oh, there we go. Let me see if nope, don't want to do that. If I click that, it's going to take me away from the, the the verse I'm on. But the last word in the verse, I'm kind of mousing over it right there for you guys to see. Um, that's the cholalti uh, verse, and um, that's the word. Did I even read the whole verse? Yeah, I did. But there harim before the mountains. Um, hatabau, yeah, hatabau lifne gavot. 
Hololti. This word that was translated in the English is brought forth. We don't have to imagine that um, this is something that God didn't have in his in his possession before creation took place. That's not really the nature of the poetic aspect of this verse. Let's go back to my own uh, commentary and you'll kind of see what I'm saying. I'm trying to get ahead of myself. The, the Hebrew word hul in uh, Proverbs 8.25 is used to describe the process of childbirth, yes, normally, which is a metaphor for the emergence of wisdom from God. So it's not really, as I take it, that the, the proverbist, I, I think I'm coining a word there, I don't think that really exists. I, I, it might exist, right? Psalmist, we've got psalmist, all right? the proverbist. The writer to the book of Proverbs isn't really saying that God didn't possess wisdom before he created wisdom and then used wisdom to create the world. That's not quite how works the writer of the proverbs understands that god is immutable that god possesses all wisdom that god is all powerful all wise there are other verses that would support these truths so instead we must be talking about a bit of a metaphoric language about the emergence of wisdom from god simply a tool that god pulled out of his out of himself to use as the kind of the focal point, the tip of the spear, as it were, to um, bring the world into existence. Much the way that he used Yeshua as the agent of creation, so that we can say later on that God created the world, that God is the creator, yet at the same time we can say that Yeshua is the creator, because the word made flesh is given credit as the creator. So Jesus is given credit as the creator later on in the apostolic scriptures, and yet at the same time when we read through the Tanakh, it's God who's given credit as the creator. How can we reconcile these two parts of our Bible together? Well, we can understand that it is God's using Yeshua Yeshua as the agent of creation to where Yeshua is the creator and yet God is the creator as at the same time they they share that title right that's not divided among them where God did half the work and Jesus did the other half or God gave the command to Jesus and God sat back and didn't do anything and Jesus did all of it or God did 99% of it and Jesus did that final icing on the cake or something like that we don't have to think of it that way let's keep reading my commentary the Greek word ganao in the Septuagint is used in the same sense as the Hebrew word yalad in verse uh, in Psalm 2:7 to describe the relationship between God and his creation. So we're just talking about this um, metaphoric language that helps us to understand how God who is almighty, all powerful and lacks nothing can at the same time use part of himself or use an attribute of himself much the same way that in the beginning that um in uh the book of genesis where moses records that in the beginning god created but then it goes on to talk about how that god spoke and god said let there be light and god said let there be you know fill in the blank with whatever day that we're referring to why think think about this for a moment why did moses record that god said Elohim? why do we have to have god speaking at all if god is all powerful couldn't he have just thought the world into existence couldn't he have just thought the universe why didn't moses write and god thought and thus it was and god thought right and the trees came forth and god thought and the sun and the moon were created god doesn't have to speak at all and yet, that is part of our um, 
relating to God as creatures are relating to God's nature by God telling Moses, write what I say, and God said. And so, in this revelation of God speaking, we then begin to realize that that forms part of our um, identifying God the Word, i.e. Jesus, as the very Word. Notice that it's the, even the, in, within the title. Jesus is the Word, which is that Word that came from the mouth of God. Jesus is that Word that was utilized by God in agency fashion to create all things. It was God's spoken word that brought the universe into existence. It could have been the thought of God, and yet in the book of Proverbs here, we now know it's the wisdom of God, which tells us there's this the overlapping theme of the word of God with the wisdom of God, which conveniently does what? Points us right in the direction of Jesus, Yeshua, right? That's kind of where the passage is going. I mean, it should be because it's all the unified word of God. So I go on to say, as I continue in my study here, the correlation between these two verses, um, the one in Psalm and the one in Proverbs, is further strengthened by the fact that both describe the pre-existence of their subjects. In Psalm 2, 7, the king of Israel is referred to as God's son, indicating his divine nature and pre-existence, providing a strong candidate I might add, in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. And then I go on to say, whereas in Proverbs 8.25, wisdom is personified as a being that existed before the creation of the world, also creating a strong link, in my opinion, to the notion of a pre-incarnate Jesus. So, are you understanding where I'm going with with, um, my comparison between the the book of the, the Psalm passage and the uh, passage right here in uh, the book of Proverbs. Um, what I'm saying is that because God is eternal, be, a like begets like. Humans give birth to other humans. Animals give birth to other animals. Like begets like. Um, plants give birth to other plants. So, insects give birth to other insects. So, in all of God's creation, like begets like. The, the parent gives um birth or uh, brings forth that which will eventually resemble the parent itself even if they lay an egg first eventually the lay the egg is developed you know the embryo inside the egg is developed and then the thing that comes out of the egg resembles the parent eventually even though it, it starts out as an infant it works its way towards a parent just like as in plants a, a, a parent plant a full-grown plant an adult plant um might give birth to seeds of itself which then fall and fall off the parent plant the adult plant go into the ground and uh, die and break open and become things that look like plants that resemble the adult the parent plant all over again so and with humans of course we just give live birth right like all other mammals we give birth to live young and the infants of us look very much like the adult version they're just fatter chubbier um, and a whole lot cuter, right? Um, and that's how babies work. So uh, this doesn't need to be a biology lesson. It should be a no-brainer. God is eternal spirit. So how can God have a son at all? What would that son look like? Wouldn't that son bear the same nature as God and the same substance as God if there was any begettal process 
at the physical level or even at the spiritual level if we're kind to entertain the idea that like the Jehovah's Witnesses that God that Jesus didn't exist until God brought this little G-O-D into the world right in the beginning it was the word the word was God and the word was a little G-O-D according to the New World Translation um, of the Jehovah's Witnesses which I soundly reject but even if that were the case it would still mean that Jesus is a God he's a lesser God but he's still God right? Because God begets God, right? Light begets light. So, when we're talking about God's Son, this indicates His divine nature and pre-existence, I believe. It speaks of the truth that the eternal pre-existent God can only give birth, as it were, to an eternal pre-existent being known as God. And yet, it boggles our mind because we can't understand how Jesus can be, have been begotten from eternity past. This is just relational language. It's the way that God relates to us as humans because um, we are we naturally be, give birth to other humans, so we can understand that language. So he uses human language to explain pres uh, heavenly uh, concepts. Let's keep reading through my uh, notes here because I don't want to make this uh, part of the study too uh, terribly difficult and long, long and drawn out. Thus, I say the incarnational aspect of these two verses is that they both point to Jesus Christ as the eternal Word of God. In John 1, 1, which I alluded to earlier, and which we're working our way towards, by the way, um, a verse that we will examine in greater detail below, which I keep hinting at, Jesus is referred to as the Word which was with God in the beginning and was God. Or, if you want to take it as a a predicate nominative when it says in the beginning was the word word was God and the word was God that last clause and the word was God or all that God was the word was or as James White is fond of translating it in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was deity well then what we're seeing is that John was given this insight that answered to the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament how can God have a son? Remember, the Son of God notion was not hidden in the Old Testament. It wasn't the mystery that God could have a son. Indeed, Israel was a type of God's son. God told uh, the Pharaoh, let my uh, let Israel go, let my people go, she's my firstborn son, let my son go. Um, so even as far back as Moses, Israel was a type of God's son. But then we fast forward to the book of Psalms and we've got David as a type of God's son as well, right? Remember, um, you are my son today, I've begotten thee, speaking of David, the Messianic king. But when we start looking at this idea of the son of man and the son of God, particularly like Daniel's prophecies, we have this son of man, which is just Hebrew code for human being. Son of man, right? Ben Adam or uh, Ben Bar Enosh in the Aramaic, but Ben uh, Adam in the um, Hebrew, but translates over into son of man in the English. But remember, the this exalted figure known as the son of man approaches the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, and this son of man is given the kingdom. That's no mere human people that's given the kingdom. This must be the son of God, the son of man. And indeed, Yeshua rightly declares that he interchanges the word son of god and son of man to speak of himself although he does it in third person which causes a little bit of confusion for a lot of people but he says you know like to the high priest caiaphas um you, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds and sitting at the right hand of god right sitting at the right hand of of power so jesus is the son of man but he's the son of god so 
it's no secret now to us that John is going to reveal the incarnational aspect of this eternal Word of God, who is the Son of God, that was with God, but yet is God. Thus, I go on to say on in my notes, as we're drawing our, our study to a close, and I'll end with this um, paragraph. Thus, with Proverbs chapter 8 providing the antecedent theology to such a belief system, Trinitarians can confidently assert that the word of John's letter is indeed the personification of wisdom, which, I go on to say, was present before the creation of the world. I put a little graphic in my uh, post-production notes here. You've got a chart that's split from top to bottom. It's a little graphic. I'm describing it for you. You can't see it for those of you who are in my Skype class, but you'll see it if you go watch the YouTube video later on. Or maybe you've seen it before if you've watched my videos. We've got Creator on the left side of this chart. I believe it's on the left side. And under the label Creator, we've got God the Father, and then we've got God the Son, and we've got God the Holy Spirit. And all of those persons rightly belong to the part of the chart that's labeled Creator. But by contrast, separated by this little yellow line that's running from top to bottom vertically, on the right side of this graphic, we have the creation. And what is that? That's everything else, people. That's everything else. This means, rightly understood, only God can exist on the Creator side of the chart. But that includes the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are eternally God. One God, three persons, all co-equal, because they're all God. And yet, they're consubstantial, they all share the same nature. So, when we're talking about this word that was with God and yet was God, we have to place him on the side of the Creator. Why? Because the rest of the New Testament, starting with John, is going to explain that all things were created through him. But wait a minute, how many things are all? Last time I checked, all things are all. So, you begin to get to the point. Jesus cannot be a created thing. He cannot be something that God whipped up, a construct, a thing, a creature, like the Jehovah's Witness slash Arians thinks. They, he cannot be something that God created. Because it says in numerous places in the Bible that all things were created by him, for him, and through him. All things means all. He couldn't have created himself, and therefore, he's not a creature. He's eternal he was present before the creation of the world so i concluding in these notes here and we'll leave off uh here and pick this up next week to be sure in colossians 1 15 through 17 these are just a few places that allude to uh, the eternal nature of jesus paul describes jesus as the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation and the one through whom all things were created right to wit I go on to say, if Jesus' identity is that of creator, and this is the little chart I was alluding to earlier, I'll flash it again later on in case you don't remember. If Jesus' identity is that of creator, his agent of creation, then this means categorically he cannot be part of the created order, rendering the ancient heretical Arian as well as Socinian claims incompatible 
and this is my um, poke at them, incompatible with the authoritative New Testament writings and Trinitarian Christology. And I say that in the nicest way possible. Please, Biblical Unitarianism, please put the Biblical back in your name. You claim to be Biblical Unitarianism. You claim to be Biblical theologians. And yet you pay lip service to the writings of the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, that clearly show and demonstrate that Jesus predated his birth in Bethlehem in the first century. This isn't the only place, right? Colossians isn't the only place that demonstrates this. There are other verses that do so as well. Not to mention the plethora of places that Jesus himself, and I'm going to get to this someday. I've got this study that I'm creating right now, but right now, but it's not ready to be to be um, published yet, but I'm, I'm building it. I'm writing it. So uh, in time, it'll be probably a, a type of excursus, but it's just a look at the raw verses where Jesus himself or other writers use this ver- verbiage of Jesus describing himself as coming down from heaven where he was with God in the beginning. He came from heaven. And yet, if the biblical Unitarian um, perspective is accurate, he didn't come down from heaven because there was no he to come down from heaven. Rather, he was in the mind of God, which means he wasn't really a he, he was an it. He was a thing in God's mind. He wasn't truly a human until he broke through his mother's womb and came into the world and breathed fresh air like all of us do when we're brought into the world from the womb into the air breathing world right we stop breathing um uh, uh what is that fluid that babies breathe but we end up breathing air well that's according to the um socinian slash biblical unitarians that's when jesus um came into existence i mean yes he was in the womb as an embryo but don't get me started there the point i'm trying to make is that they don't give him credit for coming from down from heaven they don't say he existed in heaven but according to jesus own words using the normative sense of the pronouns that we're going to look at eventually someday not right away but jesus did come down from heaven he predated his own birth in bethlehem and so that's just another way that the um Biblical Unitarians pay lip service to the New Testament that they claim is part of their own Bible. I'm sorry, if you're going to claim to be biblical, then at least give the authoritative weight to the part of the Bible that you say is in your very name, Biblical Unitarian. So, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop picking on you. I'm trying to get you to see the the error of your theology and the weaknesses of your argument when you say that Jesus didn't pre-exist his own birth at Bethlehem. So, Let's pick this up next week um, where we're continuing through. Well, you know what? Let me look at this. And so I'm talking about a summary section and a conclusion section. Nope, we'll pick this up next week. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name. And what a privilege and a blessing to be able to share these thoughts with like minded individuals around the world, as, those, as well as people who reject the theology that I'm um, putting forth in these teachings. I'm fine with that. The Word of God is not something that everyone has a corner on the market of truth and has rightly understood every little piece of information that's contained in this book. No, the Word of God is. Um, it's, it's so multifaceted that it would take lifetimes to plumb its depths. And so, Lord, we are privileged to be able to look through the pages and to rely on the Holy Spirit to unlock the meanings to us. And then with the limited amount of understanding that we can come to, we thank you, Lord, that we are in a position where we are um, 
We are commissioned to take these truths around the world and share them with other people. We are uh, responsible for that which you are revealing to us. And so thank you for this privilege. Uh, continue to help me to um, press in so that I can understand more and be able to share it with other people. Continue to raise us up as your people and continue to protect us and uh, give us a, an opportunity to witness uh, to those around us who don't yet know that Jesus is the one and only true way uh, to the Father, and that no one can approach the Father except through Him. Uh, give us holy boldness and supernatural uh, encounters so we can share the gospel with, with those around us. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.